Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to a TVO podcast. A quick programming note before we get started. This interview is recorded pre-pandemic. Most of these conversations going forward will be recorded from my apartment, so you might hear my cat Bodhi chime in from time to time. I'm Colin Ellis, and you're listening to On Docs, a podcast about documentaries and the stories they tell. Normally, I'd be introducing you to a filmmaker and their latest documentary, but we're doing things a little differently this season. You're still going to hear from filmmakers, but you're also going to hear interviews to people who don't necessarily work in documentary filmmaking, like our guest today, Suresh Das. He's a food and travel writer based in Toronto, and he's also the content editor for the LCBO's Food and Drink magazine. And you've probably heard his voice on CBC Radio's Metro Morning. Suresh and I discussed Jiro Dreams of Sushi, the 2011 documentary by director David Gelb. いい<笑> Jiro Dreams of Sushi is a fascinating portrait of Jiro Ono, a sushi master in Tokyo and his two sons who are preparing to take over their father's legacy. I'd never seen this documentary before and I was really impressed by the story being told and I'd also be lying if I said I wasn't craving some sushi afterwards. So let's get into it. Here's my conversation with Suresh Das. How did you get into to food writing? Um, how much time do you have, Colin? Uh, I have as much time as you need, sir. I come from a pretty food-rich family. Uh, mm-hmm. What I mean by that is on both sides, uh, my dad's side and my mom's side, they're both very passionate about food. Uh, so I was constantly surrounded by people that would take a lot of time to prepare something in the kitchen. Um, I grew up in Sri Lanka. I was born in Sri Lanka. Hmm. And I grew up in a time where it was in the middle of the Civil War, which meant that uh, for months at a time, I'd be out of school because there was some sort of uh, shutdown or there was some terrorist attack at a neighboring town and we were out of school for a little while. And during those weeks and months, I would either be in my dad's office. He ran a computer training school. So I'd be there in front of a computer trying to figure things out. Or I'd be in my grandma's kitchen, both both kitchens. So I was constantly surrounded by this idea of something comes from the milkman or the produce guy, and it just goes through this mill of like four or five different people that are gathering around this one space, and it gets turned into this product on a plate that I consume. Hmm. So that, that food sort of influence was always there. Uh, and then the tech influence is also there because I you know, grew, grew up around computers. We come to Canada in 1990, and um, I grew up with these two influences in the household. Dad constantly pushing me towards tech and mom pushing me towards 
paying attention to the kitchen hmm. and in the kitchen. So we had like you know rituals every Sunday and every Friday when it came to food. And my dad would constantly just try to push me to learn things. Um, so inevitably, um, I followed my dad's lead, got into tech. And I was in tech for a while, straight out of high school. And um, I kind of climbed the ladder in the tech world and I got really good at fixing things, troubleshooting things. But inevitably, um, I got bored of it. Long story short, um, it allowed me to travel the world. And that traveling allowed me to eat a variety of different foods and a variety of different scales, low, mid, and high tier. And I was really smitten by the idea of food and food from my mom's kitchen, but also food from super high-end restaurants, eating from specialists that were doing something really unique. Um, and I thought to myself, could I quit IT? Could I do this instead of that and still make a living? And that was about um, 15 to 18 years ago mm -hmm. where I made that transition slowly, started a site in Toronto. Uh, my IT background really allowed me to be able to get technology off the ground. So I was an outlier in that sense in, yeah. the, in the scene in Toronto. I was one of the first food bloggers in the city. Um, and I just kind of ran with it. And, uh, you know, like one thing led to another, and here we are today. Well, we should talk about this film that you chose to to talk about with us, Jiro Dreams of Sushi, which mm -hmm. I have to admit I'd never heard of before. I, I And I'm embarrassed to say that because apparently it's a pretty big film in the documentary world. And uh, I wonder what, what spoke to you about it. Um, on your note, it's quite an influential documentary, in, in term, especially in the food space. When you think of Chef's Table and all the Netflix shows that you see today, they were all really, honestly, inspired by this one documentary. Same director, right? Same dire well, same producer, David Gelb, yeah. a director. Um, but also even the way it's shot, the way the story is told, the sort of introspective into a chef's life and the, 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 the mind of a specialist. You see it everywhere now on Netflix. Um, in my career, I started writing about food in the early 2000s, in the early aughts. This documentary came out about nine years ago. Uh, but it was kind of, I don't want to say life-changing, but it really altered my perception of the food world and allowed me to really focus on what I wanted to do. How so? Prior to the documentary, um, I knew that what I was good at doing in, in terms of writing was focusing on restaurants that don't really always get the spotlight. Mm -hmm. So when you see um, major publications in the city covering food, they'll cover places that have some sort of PR or marketing budget that are able to get a press release out. So you have a flashy restaurant on Young Street or on Eglinton Avenue, and the publications will cover that. They'll send a photographer, and they'll do that uh, spread. But a lot of the mom-and-pop shops out in the outer boroughs don't really get that attention, and they don't have the marketing budget to push the messaging out. So my initial objective was I'm going to cover just every mom-and-pop shop that I can get my hands on. So I did that for about six, seven years, and then I took a trip to Japan. Um, this was in 2009. And that was just eye-opening. I mean, I had traveled to many different countries throughout the world before, but Japan is its own world. It's its own ecosystem in every, in every way. But kind of honing in on the food aspect, it was the first time that I'd really been dropped into a place where pretty much in, in, in every space that I was in, there was a specialized focusing on one thing. The idea that, you know, you can spend a lifetime specializing on, on one ingredient or in one process, and just trying to get better and better throughout time. When you travel through Japan and when you travel through Tokyo, you can feel this. It's palpable anywhere you go, mm -hmm. whether it's the, the fish market, Tsukiji, where you find a guy that's only selling clams. That's, that's all he's been doing for his entire life, 
four generations, let's say, or the ramen shop down the street where they just focus on a specific type of ramen. So this was life-altering in, in a way that when I came back, it really kind of rejigged the way that I look at um, covering places and profiling places. I was suddenly now obsessed with finding people that were also artisans, that were also the equivalent of shikunin in in Toronto. Can I tell the story of that one woman that's been making samosas her entire life in Mississauga as opposed to just the top 10 places to find samosas? Mm -hmm. Uh, And then I saw the movie Jiro, Dreams of Sushi, when it came out in 2011, and it just reaffirmed that. Because this movie is really a deep dive into the idea of a specialist and the mm-hmm. shikunin and the way of spending a lifetime just trying to get better at something. What does shikunin actually mean? Um, th- b- there are a few different definitions, but the way I interpreted it is it's essentially a specialist, a specialist that looks at one process or one ingredient or one dish and just, just carves away at the individual elements that make up that one process or dish and just tries to perfect it over time. Yeah. And Jiro is the epitome of perfectionist. I mean, like the amount of detail that like goes into making the sushi and having a specific like person for for rice, for tuna, like I'd never thought of <laughs> the, the 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 sushi being made in such a like intricate way. Do you know if he's still active? So I had the chance to eat at uh, um, Jiro about a year and a half ago, and he was still there. Yeah, his son was uh, clearly at the helm, and his son I think is now in his uh, mid to late sixties, um, but he's still pretty active. Um, my understanding is that just like in the documentary, you hear that Jiro Ono rarely takes a day off. He's still very committed to being at the restaurant. Mm -hmm. And his son is the one that purveys uh, the ingredients at the fish market every day. Well, I guess when the movie was shot, he was in his 80s. And, you know, this question of whether he'll retire is uh, something that uh, his sons are kind of, I guess, dealing with. Because, you know, eventually the idea is they're going to take over and and continue this legacy. Um, And it seems like such a heavy legacy for them to (laughs) to live up to. I mean, this is a guy that's... Uh, made sushi for for Barack Obama for Japanese Prime Minister Abe. Um, yeah, I just I wonder what you thought of just like I guess his will his his desire to perfect his craft to to the I guess the extent that he that he goes through. Well, so this is kind of fascinating. So this sushi restaurant is in near a train station. It's in the basement next to a train station in Ginza. Ginza is, is a district uh, in Tokyo that is well known for being um, a place filled with plenty of malls that have a lot of great food items, uh, specialty food items. There's one mall in particular where you can go into the basement four levels down and all you find is amazing sake, like world-changing sake. Um, and in, in the Ginza train station, you have this tiny, tiny, unassuming sushi spot. Um, you could easily walk by it a million times. It looks like you're in some office building. And in here, you have essentially this guy, Jiro Ono, who's taken the idea of the way sushi was served 200 years ago, the Edo-style sushi, where it would be cart-style sushi where someone would be walking down the street, they would stop, have a piece of sushi dipped in soy sauce, and then walk away. So this idea of like the rudimentary food, right, the street food. And he's taking that, and he essentially breaks down the various elements. And in this case, if you want to just break it down to three elements, whether it's fish, the soy sauce, and the rice, and he tries to perfect that over, in this case, 70 years, which is kind of crazy because, you know, sushi, I mean, I've had amazing sushi throughout my life, and it is definitely a nuanced and complex and layered thing to eat. But it, when you look at it, it looks pretty simple. And mm-hmm. certainly from our perspective here in the Western world, 
you and I have had sushi many times at our favorite places, we don't really think too much about it. Right? Yeah. We know what we like, texture and flavor and the rice, but we don't think about what makes it perfect. And here you have a guy that has gone to the lens of purveying soy sauce from this guy that he always gets soy sauce from before he ages it. Same thing with the, with the fish. He only buys fish from this one person at the Tsukiji market. Same thing with the rice. He only buys rice from this one person. And then spending the amount of time figuring out how to either age or cook something throughout a lifetime. Yeah. Uh, he, there's a great comment in the middle of the movie where he talks about octopus and how he prepares octopus. And he says something like, um, you know, like I used to like massage octopus I, for 30 minutes. You were going where I was thinking, actually, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's like, you know, I, and then I realized I should actually massage this octopus for 40 to 50 <laughs> minutes because that's when I get the most tender yeah. product and, the, and the, the right chew that I want. That's kind of crazy, right? Yeah. I mean, most chefs that you and I know or come across of will find a comfort zone where they get the, the level of quality that they want and then they stop. They kind of coast. Abajiro is a testament to... Um, the kind of chef that is relentless in their pursuit of perfection. Yeah, and he hires these apprentices to do that kind of the massaging. And, and for some of them, it takes years to actually, I guess, uh, get to the level where they're actually any good. And so many, I think there's like a lot of turnover as well, right? Yeah, I mean, um, the funny thing is there's a turnover in the food industry all over the world. It's hmm. just um, as generations shift, um, the common common is that the younger generation just are not as dedicated to the craft and they don't want to spend X amount of time learning how to get better at the craft. In Jiro's case, though, I mean, he, I think I think this is mentioned in the movie where apprentices, apprentices spend a minimum of 10 years before they can move on to a different station in the kitchen. So they spend 10 years learning either how to make rice or the tamagoyaki or something else, which is kind of crazy. Mm-hmm. That kind of patience doesn't exist in this part of the world, right? Yeah, no, our, our producer Matt was just saying uh, the, the first skill they learn is to or ring a towel, which is, like, yeah, I mean, again, it's right. like that kind of intensity is like bizarre. And I wonder just, um, well, I shouldn't say it's bizarre, actually. I, maybe I, I want to know just how uh, common it is maybe in other kitchens that you've maybe visited or seen. Well, I, I mean, okay, so if we were to talk about the kitchens in the Western world, uh, in North America at least, um, it's a, it's a, the antithesis of that. I mean, like, I think the turnover is so high. Concepts are constantly changing. We are an industry that is relying on the pace of social media as well. So food is evolving. We're learning new things. Chefs are constantly pulling in from international influences and ingredients. Those, those, those elements don't allow for you to specialize in one thing for too long because um, I think chefs are constantly worried about getting bored themselves, but they're also worried about their clients and their customers getting bored. So I, I don't I rarely come across a um, a new restaurant in Toronto where they focus on one thing and continue that focus for more than let's say a year or two at a time. Where I do see the focus though is I I do see it on the flip side with immigrant families that come here from another part of the world because in their case they're bringing food culture that is equal parts nostalgia and cultural preservation. So they need to be able to make the food the same way over and over. Do you think it affects the quality of the food? Um, this is, I mean, this is a very self. This is a very selfish comment. I think, I don't think anyone has to make the same thing over and over to get better at something. I think that becomes mechanical and it doesn't really allow for creativity. But I do find that in some instances, in the case of um, immigrant uh, restaurants, 
When they come here, they discover ingredients that actually make the dishes better. So, for example, um, I think that we have better access to meat in North America. We have really high-quality meat. And that, in turn, has made certain types of soup dishes from Southeast Asia way better here. Like, I've had way better pho in North America than in Vietnam because we have better access to beef and, and pork. And um, on, the, on the flip side, um, flour. In terms of wheat, we have the best wheat in the world in Canada, which gets sent all around the world. When you have noodles or pasta, we have the best product here in Canada. So you see, see that elevation. You see that sort of tangential different uh, difference in terms of how a product will taste here compared to how it would taste in Beirut, for example. Is it better or worse? I, I, can't, I, I can't really comment because it's different. But what I love seeing is when that cook discovers that, and they find that they have a better product to work with, that kind of reinvigorates their passion in mm. cooking, if that makes any sense. I think so, yeah. Well, I, it's funny. I was in Japan years ago, and I you know, obviously ate the sushi there, and it's miles ahead of what it is here, mm-hmm. obviously just because when you're there, it's, it's, it's kind of the real thing. Um, and I've even been to that fish market too, like, yeah. and it's, it's humongous. The one thing I remember in the film that was uh, – I, I think they were sort of crit- criticizing it, but you see the sushi on the conveyor belts mm-hmm. and uh, this idea that, you know, there's this mass consumption of sushi and it's leading to, I guess, a depletion of, of uh, fish mm-hmm. as a result. Yeah. And uh, that was something that was kind of uh, not new to me, but it was something that was interesting that they were uh, taking into consideration as well. I-, I wonder what you thought of that. Well, I mean, this is like the topic of the town right now, right? Sustainability and the fact that we're overfishing our waters. But, um, you know, Rewatching Jiro Dream Sushi, which is a doc that came out nine years ago, it was really cool to see them address that. As a chef, that charges, I mean, he's charging $400 a head now um, yeah. for you to have 20 or so pieces of sushi. Um, I, I'm glad that he addresses it. Look, look I, don't think, I don't think we need all-you-can-eat sushi hmm. in, 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 our, in our lives. And I don't think we need conveyor belt sushi. I don't think we need that level of convenience applied to a product that, you know, can lead to overfishing uh, our waters, right? I think um, sushi, um, much like many other things, uh, especially um, um, our, our obsession with protein, I think it's something we have to curb. We have to enjoy and, and enjoy it in smaller quantities. Um, I've, the, the conveyor belt sushi um, concept is fascinating. We had a couple of those restaurants launch in Toronto in the aughts, like I would say 15 years ago. I remember this. There was a, a place that opened on Young Street, just south of Yeah um, um, Bloor, and uh, it was hot for like a minute because everyone was like, "Well, what's this really cool thing? You can sit down, you don't have to engage with any waiter or anyone else, and you have this card in front of you uh, and this conveyor belt that kind of rotates around with different types of plates." But it was hot for a minute, and then people realized, "Okay, like there's a considerable amount of waste of food here, and also the quality wasn't just wasn't great." Um, I, I don't think we should. We need conveyor belt sushi and all you can eat sushi. You mentioned, I mean, the price again was like what four hundred? You said. Yeah, I think um, when I f- when I went uh, a year and a half ago, uh, I didn't pay for it, but it was uh, four fifty a person, uh, and that's just you know just you're having. It was a, about twenty to twenty five pieces of, of of sushi in in three in three sort of sections. I felt guilty doing it about halfway through. Because of the level of quality in terms of the product, you know, as the menu progressed, you got the sense that you were essentially eating your way through the extinction list, mm-hmm. right? Um, because of how rare some of these um, um, seafood products are. Um, 
life changing. It was a great experience, of course, but like you feel guilty as you're as you're navigating through it. You mentioned, uh, or we talked about Jiro's son, who's in his mid sixties. Uh, I guess he's supposed to carry on this legacy that Jiro has passed on to him. And I wonder. I guess we sort of already touched on it, but this like, notion of, I guess, you know, the restaurant as a family legacy being passed down is that still kind of a like a like a I guess a prominent. Uh, thing that the next generation wants to pass on to their next to their next of kin or their their children. I I think this is a hot topic right now in the GTA yeah. for a number of reasons. So in the movie, um, we meet Jiro's two sons, um, Yoshikazu, who is the oldest, and uh, Takashi, who is the younger son. So the oldest son has been apprenticing for. Pff, so many years, like for over 40 years. And finally, about a decade ago, he had the chance to kind of grab the reins and, and run the, the counter. Um, but he talks about this immense pressure that he feels taking over this restaurant because he needs to meet the quality of his dad's uh, cooking. And the younger son, Takashi, d- decided he was never going inver- to inherit the restaurant. He decided to o- go and open his own uh, place. And he makes a comment in the movie where he says that there's an immense amount of pressure and my dad has been making sushi since before I was born. And the only way I can match him is if I lower my prices. Hmm. So, okay, that's that's a very Japanese thing. That's a very Tokyo thing. The the issue that I see on a day-to-day basis in the, in the GTA with my work is you have, again, you have these immigrant cultures that have come here over the last 50, 60 years, first-generation immigrants that have set roots, the, and a large percent of, the, of them have decided to open a food business. So great, they've opened a Chinese restaurant in Chinatown or a Lebanese place in Scarborough, and they've found an audience. So over the next 20 or 30 years, they have this community that has rallied around them, and they've become successful. They put their kids through school. They've hopefully gone on to find better housing. Um, kids have gotten a great education, and they're now at, the, at this crossroad. You have Boomer and Gen X and millennials, right? The parents don't necessarily want their kids to take over the restaurant. Well, why would they? They they busted their butts, standing for fourteen hours a day, trying to make ends meet, to to run this restaurant, to put money, uh, food on the table, and money in the bank. They want they don't want their kids to do that. They want their kids to go into STEM and become lawyers and uh, um, and go into medicine. The kids may want to take over their family's business because they feel the legacy. It's a palpable thing. They may see how happy it's made people around them. Or they may have no interest because they have a successful career on Bay Street, whatever it is. So there, there is this crossroad that I am noticing more and more because the places that I profile are ones that have been around for 20, 30 years. In those instances, it's fascinating to understand the conversation that's taking place between father and son, mother and daughter. Because in most cases, there's a... Uh, the, the business dissolves, it disappears, and we're seeing that all over the GTA right now. I mean, there was a Chinese restaurant called Sihai that closed at the end of uh, February, and it's been open for 40-something years. Um, I'm running into places where the kids don't want to be a part of it, and in the few instances that they do want to be a part of it, they try to tamper with it a little bit. And what gets lost, I guess, when they don't continue that uh, restaurant. I, I struggle with this answer. Food is constantly changing. I have to remind myself this. It's an organic thing. It changes every time you make it. As you travel, it changes. Immigration changes it. Wars change it. So when kids take over a restaurant, they want to put their tweaks on it, right? Because these kids have grown up in Toronto, and they've grown up with a variety of different cultures. They're not their parents. They want to add something to that taco or that chili chicken, and they want to make it their own. And it doesn't necessarily make it better or worse. It's its own thing. But what you lose in the process is, is you lose the story of a time and place. Mm-hmm. I think that's the best way I can say it. 
you lose the story of what that chili chicken was in the 50s, 60s, or 70s. And what does that mean? I mean, food's changing all the time. We, we've only been documenting food for the last couple hundred years, so we don't even know what we've lost before that, right? It also sort of makes Toronto a less interesting city. I mean, I'm speaking just of Toronto because this is where I grew up, but I mean, you know, I walk through neighborhoods. Uh, I grew up in Chinatown, and, you know, that neighborhood's constantly changing, and little Jamaica, you know, uh, not too far from our studios. I mean, losing businesses there. And sometimes it's, you know, the economics, sometimes it's just they 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 don't want to do it anymore, right? Like they just, they're, they're kind of done. Like Yeah, yeah. I mean, in, in most cases, they want to bookend that that story and, and close the chapter. Absolutely. And I, I'm going to say that you're going to notice this more and more in the next couple of years as boomers start to retire. The first generation starts to retire. So if you had to, if you considered, let's say, Jiro uh, Dreams of Sushi was a, was a starter uh, and you wanted to go on to your next uh, meal, your main course, what would you choose? Either a movie or a, a series? Uh, what would you send people to watch? Oh, um... Well, okay. So David Chang's um, Ugly, Ugly Delicious has a new season coming out. I've seen a few episodes. It's great. I think um, he's really uh, made some tweaks to that show based on the feedback that he got from season one where there are a lot more diverse voices and he's really tackling a lot of interesting uh, subject matter in, in the food space, whether it's um, access to food, sustainability, and um, whether it's cultural appropriation. All those topics are great and they're in season two. So I'd recommend that show right now. Um, other than that, I think um, most of my consumption right now is through podcasting and through reading uh, online. So I love like the KCRW Good Food Podcast, the Bon Appetit Podcast is great. Splendid Table is fantastic. Um, and I really love the food writing that's coming out of the West Coast, uh, San Francisco Chronicle and the Los Angeles Times. I think there's some – I think we used to be a city that really followed in the footsteps of New York and we're now – following in the footsteps of L.A. for the last couple of years. So all the exciting stuff is really happening in the West Coast. And uh, where can people find you? Um, so I've got a weekly show on CBC Metro Morning every Thursday. Um, I'm the food guide for CBC. You can find me there. I'm also the content editor for the LCBO Food and Drink magazine. And on social media, on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me at Suresh. Awesome. Thanks so much, Suresh. Thank you. And that's the podcast. Thanks to Suresh Das for coming on the show. There's another new episode of On Docs available to download right now. It's my conversation with director Alan Zweig about his new doc for TVO, Coppers. So go check that out. And you can find more On Docs content at our website, tvo.org. If you liked what you heard, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And give us five stars. It helps new listeners find the show. If you have a favorite food doc of your own, you can let me know about it by writing to us at ondocs at tvo.org. You can also follow me on Twitter at colinellis81. This episode of On Docs was produced by Matthew O'Mara and me. Our production support coordinators are Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Howell. Our series producer is Katie O'Connor, and our executive producer for digital is Kathy Vay. We'll catch you at the next screening. <laughs>